The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. We want to thank our sponsors also for making this show economically viable. Uh, for the first hour of today's show, our sponsors are Timmins Gold Corp., Miranda Gold, Paramount Gold, Sand Gold Corp., and Uranium Energy Corp. Um, I had um, thought uh, sometime, well, I guess I should mention uh, also, as I usually do at the start of this show, that you can follow all that I do. I do write a newsletter called J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Uh, you can access that by going to J. Taylor Media, that's J-A-Y, taylormedia.com. Uh, and you can also access Channel Lynn's newsletter through that uh, website as well. Just uh, click on newsletters when you get to that site. You can also access this radio show through jtaylormedia.com. Well, certainly uh, a word about the gold markets uh, is in order today, given the tremendous decline over the last few days, a rapid, violent decline, I think is a better way of describing it. I had thought that the gold markets would hold support at around 1540 and that we were probably bottoming out from that level and that the chances were better than much better than 50-50, I thought, that we would start to see uh, a rebuilding of the gold uh, bull market uh, and uh, clearly I was wrong. So once the 1540 level was broken, it was really, it was a case of Katie bar the door. What happened? Why did gold take such a sudden and violent decline in price? Well, uh, you know, maybe the global financial markets and economic system has healed itself, right? Hey, let's, uh, if we watch the mainstream media, that's the, that's the spin that we're given, uh, that things are getting better. Mr. Bernanke printing money. We can print our way out of these troubles. Uh, perhaps David Stockman's book, The Great Deformation, is already out of date. I mean, it just went to market, but maybe David is full of baloney. Maybe he doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, I think that's both of those scenarios it would be great if it were true, if we could believe that the better, that the good times are here again and that all those big problems of too much debt and, uh, you know, all the malinvestment that came with all that debt was washed away. And, I mean, um, clearly, uh, Mr. Dr. Skousen was on with us a few weeks ago, suggested that some of the malinvestment has been washed out of the system already and that things aren't really as gloomy as some of us gold bugs uh, claim. Now, let's hope that Mark is right. Uh, Dr. Skousen certainly is a, a brilliant man, and he could be right. Um, but I don't, I don't believe that he, even he thinks that that's completely true, that there's a, a lot of problems left in this economy. So... So what did cause last week's decline? If you don't buy the idea that the economy has healed itself and Keynesian economics and millions, trillions and trillions of dollars created out of nothing has cure, uh, cured our problems, but what did cause a decline last week? Well, I think Adrian Day came up with some good ideas in his newsletter that he sent out this morning. Adrian uh, has been on the show at various times. He says, uh, first of all, that uh, last week there were rumors of Cyprus selling to meet its debt obligations, selling gold to meet its debt obligations, and it wasn't a large amount that Cyprus was going to sell, but it was enough to set off uh, some fears that there could be more of the same coming from other countries, like 
Spain and Portugal and maybe Italy, some of the problem countries in Europe. Then on Friday, there was a sale of about 400 tons of gold in two tranches. This, uh, as Adrian points out, is a very substantial amount of gold, equivalent to about 15% of annual production and more than is held in reserves by Spain or Portugal. The rapid sales were clearly not undertaken, Adrian says, in a profit-maximizing manner. This means that either that a seller had to sell, he was forced to sell, uh, to pay the margin clerk, or uh, that he wanted to disrupt the market. Uh, Adrian suggests that possibly it was a sale by a central bank, but it was undertaken on the futures markets, not the physical markets, and we may never know who was the seller. But Adrian goes on, he says, uh, it had the effect of triggering margin calls and panic. No question, this was a significant price decline for both bullion and the gold shares. However, he, Adrian uh, Day points out, he says, we should take two factors into consideration. Number one, bad, this was a bad decline, but not all that bad. In 1975 and 76, for example, we had a 43% decline compared to this one, which is close to 30%. And we have never had a correction like that in this bull market so far. So this may be that correction that one would expect in a major multi-multi-year secular bull market. Well, another reason uh, that... um, uh, not Adrian this time, but Chen Lin pi- passed along to his subscribers, uh, suggested, and, and this is collaborated by some other ideas uh, that I've been reading as well, uh, that a lot of the selling may have come out of Japan. In fact, uh, in Japanese yen, the gold price has hit all-time highs. And so with all of the quantitative easing that's going on in Japan, a lot of people figured that they would sell their gold and buy stocks. And so the Japanese stock market has been quite strong, and um, and that could very well be another reason for the decline in gold. Perhaps uh, a combination of various factors. I do think one thing you do need to keep in mind is that the natural uh, the natural forces of economics are suggesting are not suggesting they're demanding a deflation. There is way too much debt; it cannot be repaid. And of course, the central bankers, the Keynesians, are trying to fight the natural market inclination by printing untold trillions of dollars, and that is causing, in my view. Not less problems, but more problems, and it's going to make the ultimate decline all the worse. I must say that uh, while I am hopeful that with today's gold price being up about just about 1% to 1374, that maybe we have bottomed out. Maybe we are near uh, a basing point here. Uh, maybe the, dry, the knife has fallen and hit the table. It's bounced up in the air a bit. Let's hope it doesn't fall off the table and onto the floor. If it does, I could see us going to 1,000, as low as 1,000. And actually, uh, if you look at the charts, that is where there is the most sound, uh, let's say, support, is if you go across that chart uh, and look uh, basically at 1,000. Now, if we got into a little over 1,000, right around that area, we would get back to about a 43% um, decline from the top. And another analyst has pointed out that, in fact, it's about uh, a little over 1,000 uh, where uh, would be a very significant area if we breached that and went below. The bull market then could be over uh, the secular bull market. Um, so we'll have to wait and see. My belief is that uh, the basics have not been fixed. The problems are still there as big as ever. Uh, money is being printed infinitely by not just the central bank, not just the Fed, but central banks around the world. And this is a very, very bullish case for gold. I think there were certain things that came together to make the perfect storm against gold. Uh, and now I think this could be, as Adrian Day suggests, the buying uh, the buying opportunity for this bull market, for this secular bull market, perhaps the last great buying opportunity that you'll have. Time will tell. Well, what does all this mean then in, uh, for our investments and how should we handle it? Well, uh, I can tell you that personally I went out and committed more to gold mining shares than I wished I had, believing that we would, that we, that that 1540 level would have, uh, support level would have held. I was wrong. And when I saw that I was wrong, I sold out of a lot of things, uh, that I could sell out of, the more liquid things and built some cash. 
uh, and played a couple of short things uh, the last couple of days, and that worked out fairly well. Um, but uh, now I'm looking to get back in, and I did this morning uh, get back into one of our sponsors. In fact, I hadn't owned Timmons before uh, personally in, in my retirement account, but this morning I did buy what is a substantial amount of gold for me, uh, uh, shares for me, a position in my IRA in Timmons Gold. And Timmons uh, just announced, in fact, uh, the last day or so, that it reached a record 28,328 ounces of production during Q1 of uh, to to of this year and this is um just to quote Bruce Braganola who will be on this show sometime in the near future to talk about Timmins gold um I should I should mention Timmins is selling at $2.24 and one of the reasons I decided to buy it was because that was a 21% discount from last time last week at this time when we talked about Timmins gold and so that combined with this notice that they had produced a record number of ounces in the first quarter there are capital improvements and crushing facilities that have gone into place are really helping this uh, company's production mode and, uh, and and efficiencies. So their cost per ounce should, uh, should go down. Uh, just to quote Bruce Braganello, uh, he says, we continue to realize the benefit of our stage two crusher expansion as seen with the record throughput and production this quarter. Gold ounces produced was up over 15% quarter on quarter and crusher throughput was up uh, over 22% quarter on quarter crushing throughout uh, crushing throughput is planned to increase further as we continue to optimize the existing crushing circuits and our third crushing circuit the equipment for which is scheduled to arrive imminently now this is a company that has great exploration potential i think their their growth prospects are very good and again buying it at this point in time uh, should uh, should work out i believe very very well for timmins gold a producer um Another company uh, that I like, another sponsor I'd like to just talk about briefly is Golden Arrow. And Golden Arrow came out uh, last week. It's selling, by the way, at twenty cents um, with forty-one point eight million shares. It's got a market cap of less than ten million dollars. Despite the fact, it looks to me like this company could very well be on to the discovery of a major silver deposit, uh, the Chinchillas de- uh, silver deposit. In um, in Argentina now, uh, one of the things that really has me excited about this is not only some really great uh, intercepts that was announced last week by the company, 108 meters of 125 grams per ton silver uh, and 1.2 percent lead, and another 93 mil- meter uh, intersection that graded 182 grams of silver and 1.4 percent lead with some zinc along it. Uh, but the fact that they have intercepted the feeder zone uh, that looks very much akin to another major uh, silver deposit not that far away and along the same trend. Uh, this, I think, is very exciting. I think the prospects for uh, the Chinchilla silver uh Discovery turning into something very substantial uh, is is growing uh, very much and th- uh, very rapidly, I should say, uh, as they just reported phase two of of the drilling program. Now they will be coming out with a 43101 resource very shortly, and I think it should be uh, a very positive note. I should also mention that the Magodi uh, so, uh, copper deposit. Uh, I think the market isn't giving this company any value for that. Uh, I guess it's too early to call it a deposit. It's a discovery, uh, but some very impressive long intersections um, that have been reported there, and Valet, the major uh, South American mining company, is funding that project as well. So there could be another uh, another project that this little tiny company with a $10 million market cap has uh, that could really cause this stock to fly. Uh, Sandgold, uh, we just mentioned Sandgold. I believe this is a turnaround situation. Time will tell. Uh, the cost-cutting mode uh, that this company is in, I think, should pay off. Uh, and uh, they just announced they produced 17,354 ounces of gold in its first quarter. The company is guiding 75,000 to 90,000 ounces of gold production this year at $800 to $900 cost. So those are three of our sponsors that I that I'm very uh, very excited about. I'm, I like all of our sponsors. I went into detail last week talking about our sponsors. I'm very excited about all of the companies we have as sponsors now. Each and every one I own. Each and every one uh, are recommendations in my newsletter. Well, let's talk about today's show. I've only got a couple of minutes before we go to our first guest. Uh, I'm I'm going to be meeting in just a couple of minutes. Um, 
I'm, I'm going to be meeting with Jonathan Moore. He's going to be joining me right after our first break. And he heads up the Metals and Minerals Conference that will be at the, Marquee, uh, the Marriott Marquis uh, on Times Square on May 13th and 14th. And this is going to be a very exciting show. Uh, we got Ron Paul coming there. Rick Rule uh, will be there. Several people that are that have been guests on this show, like Rick Rule, Ian McAvity, Adrian Day, Paul Van Eden, just to name a few, will be there. Uh, so in, a, in just another minute or two, we're going to talk to Jonathan Moore about this year's very exciting show. At 3.30, I will be talking to Curtis Ellis, who has been a writer and producer for Lou Dobbs' uh, Tonight Show, um, and he is currently uh, involved as an executive director of the American Jobs Alliance. Curtis will talk to us about something called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, which is a sort of a sneak attack uh, by the President Obama to uh, to give up a lot of sovereignty that the United States has and give that to a group of 10 other company, countries uh, that will have a lot to say about how we carry out our trade policy and so forth. Um, then uh, we're going to be talking to Jeff Berwick at 4 o'clock. Jeff is going to talk to us about Bitcoin. Uh, we'll have, uh, he's got some very exciting things going on. Uh, Bitcoin, to explain Bitcoin, what it is, uh, it's a mystery to most people, uh, but I think Jeff will help to clarify it. And he is really uh, involved in some interesting projects, one of which is to uh, put in place Bitcoin ATM machines. He's going to do that. In uh, He and his friends, uh, a, a company, are planning to put in a Bitcoin ATM machine in Cyprus uh, and, and elsewhere. So we'll be talking to... Uh, to Jeff Berwick. He's been on a lot of the major media in New York recently talking about Bitcoin. Uh, very interesting topic um, and uh, certainly something that uh, the government is somewhat concerned about, I would think, as they are with gold. At about 4.30, Rich Redez is going to join me. He's going to talk about his uh, conference, his mining conference at Rolling Meadows in Chicago. This is a small one-day affair that I go to. I do know that Bravada Gold, uh, which is one of the sponsors of this show, will be there. Bravada, by the way, is a company I'm very excited about at $0.04 cents a share Yes, I think uh, it, it, it's speculative. How could it not be at that price? But this is a company that has a PEA that shows it should have a 70 or 80 cents valuation on that one project alone, and it's got uh, Argonaut Gold spending seven and a half million on its Wind Mountain property to uh, to develop that. So I think um, you're, the Chicago conference is certainly one that you might also want to listen to what Rich Redes has to say, and he'll be coming on again later on. That's a conference that's uh, sort of a better uh, a better place for people in the Midwest to go to that uh, that aren't so close to either West Coast or East Coast. Um, well, that's uh, we do have to go to our break now, and when we come back, uh, we'll be talking to Jonathan Moore about the upcoming conference at Times Square in New York City. Don't go away. I'll be right back. business you'll find the experts here voice america business network windfall profits happen frequently in gold exploration stocks but the risk of losses are also common brand the gold enhances prospects of shareholder gains by combining the intellectual capital of geologists mine finders ken cunningham and joe herbert with other people's hard dollars in search for elephant-sized gold deposits in politically safe places like Nevada and Columbia. That keeps shareholder dilution to a minimum, so when discoveries are made, major gains are possible. For more, go to MirandaGold.com. Bravada Gold Corporation controls 18 exploration and development properties covering nearly 50 square miles in Nevada's well-known gold trends. Its flagship Wind Mountain Gold Silver Project is 100% owned and had an independent updated resource estimate and positive preliminary economic assessment in early 2012. This past September, Bravada signed an agreement with Argonaut Gold to further explore and develop Wind Mountain. For further information, please visit bravadagold.com. Attention mining investors, Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources. 
www.ChristianMarriageResources.com or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Times. I'm really pleased to have with me once again Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Moore. Uh, he is the Senior Vice President and Managing Director for the organization that puts on this excellent show in New York, uh, the Metals and Minerals Conference, and uh, so it's really good to have, have you back again, Jonathan. Welcome. Jay, Jay, always a pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. It's really good to have I know that you've, uh, you guys have been working hard to put together, uh, this show coming up and, you know, the market hasn't been cooperating with you very well. But before we get into some of the reasons people should go to this show, uh, talk to me a little bit. Just tell our listeners, where is it? When is it? Uh, hotel accommodations, if you can give our listeners some of that information. Sure. The event takes place in New York City, May 13th and 14th. It's at the Marriott Marquis, which is where it's been for uh, all the years we've had it. Uh, the show is formally named the Hard Asset Investment Conference. We rebranded it this year, Metals and Minerals, to try to give those not familiar with the event a little bit more of a sense of, of what we talk about and the core aspects, aspect of what the event's about. Yeah, it is metals and minerals for sure. And before we get into some of the keynote speakers and some of the people that you're going to have, uh, really exciting people that you have at the show this year, uh, there is, I might just mention that while I think probably most of the companies at your show are mining and metals, there is one company that has really caught my eye that I like a lot. I've purchased it personally. I have it in my newsletter, and it's Synodon, S-Y-N-O-D-O-N, and this is a company that has a technology. Paul Van Eden is involved with this company. He's on the board of directors, but it's a company that actually can monitor and track leaks in pipelines, and it's a very small market cap, but it's one I would just mention to my listeners, one that I find extremely exciting. Uh, I purchased, a, a, a for my, you know, given my relative size, I purchased a, a sizable amount of these shares. Uh, so I just mentioned that while you have a lot of mining companies, you also have some other very interesting companies, and I'm just, just saying that this is one I'm very excited about. Well, let's get into uh, who, who are some of the companies, or not companies, who are some of the Ron Paul you've got coming this year, I think, right? We, we, we do have Dr. Paul quite excited. It's, uh, it'll be his first time uh, participating in the event, but I think uh, for our audience, he represents uh, you know, one of the best names that we can get. We're delighted to uh, to welcome him to the stage for this year. Uh, in addition, from a keynote perspective, uh, Jeff Christian uh, from CPM Group, uh, Chris Gaffney from, from Everbank, we've got uh, Ken Hoffman from Bloomberg, uh, Ian McAvity, who I know you've had uh, a lot of interactions with and probably been on the show in the past, uh, Kevin Quinn from State Street, um, Rick Rule, who uh, I know you, you frequently uh, interact with and uh, I think is uh, extremely well known for our audience. So probably one of our strongest lineups, Jay, as it relates to uh, you know, the quality of the keynotes. And you know, even beyond that, throughout the entire uh, agenda, we've just got uh, a, a world-class group of, uh, of presenters for this year. There's no doubt about it. I think that um, uh, I, I think the companies that are there are going to be very pleased because I, I know that the number of companies are not as high as they've been in the past, given the difficulty these these companies are having now. I mean, it's just almost impossible for a lot of these companies to raise money, and they're they're really on a on a uh, let's say uh, let's say almost in a hibernation um, budget these days, uh, trying to hold on to the cash they've got. I honestly, Jonathan, believe that we must be close to a turnaround in this market, but it can be very, very painful. But in the meantime, you've got these great guests. There's going to be some some wonderful companies there. Uh, can you give our, our listeners an idea? What's sort of the mix? I mean, you've got gold mining companies, mostly mining companies, right? But are, would you say that most of them are in the precious metals field or, or what? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the majority of our of our companies are, uh, you know, junior exploration, exploration producers uh, and producers, um, largely gold, silver, but we also cover copper, nickel, platinum, base metals, um, rare earths. We will have uh, about 50 uh, sponsors this year, uh, sponsors and exhibitors that will uh, will be in support of the event, which is, uh, you know, as you mentioned, uh, a very challenging market right now, so, uh, you know, a bit down from where we typically are, but we expect... Uh, you know, some real robust discussion and some great interactions. I think those that are savvy on the marketplace look right now and see opportunities uh, within what's happening here. I was listening to some of your comments while I was on hold waiting to uh, to come on, and, and I think you hit the nail on the head with respect to the idea that there's a number of companies out there that when you look at, you know, what their evaluations should be relative to what they currently are, uh, that there's some real great opportunities for those, uh, you know, willing to put capital uh, to work here in this environment. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It's not easy to do. You know, our gut tells us, no, no, this is a falling knife, and you got to wait till things sort of stabilize, I agree, before you jump in. But one of the things, Jonathan, I would observe with a, a conference with fewer companies there, sometimes you go to these shows and there's several, there can be a couple of hundred, several hundred companies, and it's so much to get your head around. There's just too much there uh, to absorb. Now, what I think you've got from a uh, from a cons- from an investor's standpoint is the survival of the fittest, the companies that are there are probably the ones for the most part that are able to be there so financially they may be stronger than most of the others and secondly you don't have so many booths to wade through so while uh, from your point of view you like more sponsors because you're in business and that's how you raise your capital, this is a free show, people don't have to pay to get in so it's financed by the companies uh, but from a from from the perspective of an investor, I think this could be a very good show to go to. I know I like to go to smaller shows sometimes because it's just easier to get your head around what's there and feel like you're accomplishing something. Otherwise, you just feel sort of overwhelmed by so many so many companies. Yeah, I think that's 100% accurate, Jerry. I think when you look at you know the shakeout that's happened within the marketplace, those are that are still. Uh, in a position to participate in events like this, I think represent probably the, uh, you know, the stronger, uh, of the, of, of the companies that are out there. Um, I do think we have a very attractive list of, uh, of, of companies that are going to be there for investors to come talk to. I think the other thing that this show represents and, you know, when, when, when the market's great and, you know, everything is working, um, you know, the need for knowledge is, is substantially less than when the market's not good. And, and right now, um, you know, the best thing that investors can do is, is get firsthand knowledge about what's going on in the marketplace from the combination of people that we have here, which are, you know, the world's foremost experts on, on commodities and, and metals and mineral stocks, as well as directly from the CEOs of those companies talking about the projects that they have ongoing, the things that they're working on so that you can be best equipped to go and and and, and make the investments and uh to your point sometimes those are uh you know uh ones that aren't uh, as as easy as we make at other times but right now um might be a great opportunity for people to really make some hay you know, I, I don't, one of the uh, people that are, you know, one of your keynote speakers that I hold in, in the highest uh, uh, acclaim is Rick Rule. And I don't know how many times I've been in, uh, involved in the conferences that when things are pretty frothy and people are really happy and there's lots of smiles and people throwing money around rapidly. And Rick Rule is saying, I think, you know, we should take some of the punch away from this party uh, because this is getting a little frothy. And I'm saying to myself, I don't want to hear that, man. This is too much fun. Uh, but, you know, Rick is the kind of guy that's back in there buying right now because he did sell early and he's got the cash to go in and buy things when they're really cheap. You know, when stocks are selling at pennies and yet the uh, the economic studies that have been carried out show they should be selling for dollars. And in some cases, in many cases, that's, that's what's there. So I think that is true. I might just mention we've got another minute or two left here yet, but... Uh, you also have a lot of other great speakers and, you know, besides the keynote people that you mentioned, uh, certainly Dr. Paul will be a highlight from my perspective. I've known Ron Paul for a number of years. He's been on this show as well as Rick Rule, Ian McAvity. Um, but we're looking at some of the other people. Brent Cook is an excellent geologist, uh, I think, and he's been on this show a number of times. Adrian Day, Mickey Falp, uh, Adrian Day, a, a great, uh, I think a great, uh, Adrian Day Asset Management, uh, manages money. I always enjoy uh, being with Adrian and, and on a panel with Adrian at the end of the day. Uh, Mickey Falp, 
a geologist. Peter Granich is going to be there, Al Corlin, my friend. Chris Martinson, I was really delighted to see his name pop up here because Chris Martinson, I just recently had him on the show, uh, his book, The Crash Course, uh, which is, uh, I think he's really an interesting, insightful person. He's going to be there as well. Uh, Axel Merck, John Meyer. I mean, you just have an awful lot of people. Uh, we do. It's 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 a great lineup. Paul Van Eden. I mean, I think one of the people that uh, uh, you mentioned earlier is uh, as as somebody that people gravitate to. I uh, probably uh, uh, be amazingly remiss if we didn't point out that obviously you're going to be one of our our, our speakers as well, and uh, have been a long uh, a long time uh, supporter and and speaker at the event. So to your listeners, Jay will uh, will be on the stage, and uh, you should come down and uh, see him in the live act. He uh, he does a great job. Thank you. I appreciate that. But I, I would say that there is there are just so many people. And Paul Van Eden, uh, myself, Rick Rule will be the moderator. I think that uh, who Ian McAvity and Adrian Day will be on the on the final panel as well. So really looking forward to it. Um, Jonathan, I want to thank you very much. Anything else you'd like to? Uh, just, uh, just again, it's at the Marriott Marquis, and the dates are May 13th and 14th. You can register in advance at our website, uh, metalsandminerals.events.com, uh, and you can also register right on site. Uh, you pointed out earlier it's free to attend, so uh, come down and join us. We uh, we should have a great crowd on hand, and, and you know, so just some fantastic uh, content for those that can come down and be with us. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Uh, really good. I look forward to seeing you and, and all the other folks that are going to be there, and it's a great part of town, too. Uh, the Times Thanks, Square, Jay. the Mar- Marriott Marquis. It's um, people can a lot of times people come into town uh, and take in a Broadway play or so in the evening uh, as well. So it's a it's a great way to go. Thank you very much, Jonathan, for being with us again. Always um, a pleasure. And folks, don't go away. We're going to be with Curtis Ellis. He's going to come here uh, to talk about. Um, well, he's a former producer and writer for Lou Dobbs, and he's going to talk about a very important uh, subject, I think. Uh, if you're concerned about uh, one world government and the United States losing its sovereignty and, as a result, you losing your say as a citizen of this country, then I think you're not going to want to miss what Curtis Ellis has to say. Don't go away. We'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. Paramount Gold is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce advanced stage gold and silver projects in the mining-friendly jurisdictions of Nevada and northern Mexico, backed by a strategic investor and a strong balance sheet. An experienced management team has completed preliminary economic assessments on both projects, showing robust economics and immense potential for increasing ounces and mine life. For more information, go to ParamountGold.com or follow on Twitter, PZG News. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time Curtis Ellis. Curtis was a writer and producer for Lou Dobbs Tonight and is currently the executive director of the American Jobs Alliance. Uh, he has over 40 years of experience in national media as a writer, producer, reporter, talk show host, and public relations specialist, and served as communications director and on-the-record spokesperson on, in- on campaigns and for city, state, and federal elected officials. His commentary has appeared in CNN, MSNBC, NPR, goes on and on. He's uh, been on a lot of television appearances with Tom um, 
he, he's, or he's, I should say, he's written for internationally recognized broadcasters like Tom Brokaw, Brian Williams, uh, David Gregory, etc. So it's really good to, to have Curtis with us. Welcome, Curtis, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm really glad you could come on. I heard your, uh, your fiery presentation at the uh, New York City Junto event uh, last a couple of weeks ago, I guess it was now, uh, and I was really, really pleased to, um, to learn to know of your efforts uh, to stop this Trans-Pacific Partnership, and I, that's basically what I want to talk to you t- today about, but before we get to that, could you possibly talk a little bit about uh, what is the American Jobs Alliance? Who is behind it? Who funds it? What's its What's its purpose? I mean, I would guess from the name, it's all about trying to keep jobs in the United States. Oh yes, the American Jobs Alliance is a independent, nonpartisan, nonprofit, five hundred one c four organization. We uh, have been approved by the IRS. We're not affiliated with any candidate or any political party or union or trade association or corporation. We have about 50 that we were founded in 2010. We have about 50,000 individual members, uh, not business members, they're individuals across the country from every region, every walk of life and every political persuasion. Uh, who believe, our members believe, that jobs should be America's top priority. We still believe in the idea of a national economy, that there is such a thing as a national economy, not simply a global marketplace. There is, of course, there is this thing called globalization, but whoever said that there's no place for a United States of America in the globe? We're funded primarily by our members. We were founded with uh, seed money by a patriotic businessman, a man in the manufacturing industry. There's still some of that left in the country. And he no. was inspired to uh, found this organization or uh, come to me to, to create this organization because he saw he produces something in the manufacturing supply chain. The product that he makes is not something that any consumer would ever buy. Mm-hmm. But the things that we buy cannot be made without the product that he makes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's used to make glass, ceramics, steel, die-cast wheels. If you have magnesium wheels or aluminum uh, wheel hubs on your car, uh, that's, those are created using the, uh, the, the, the product that this, uh, this entrepreneur's factory turns out. He saw a situation where 80% of his customers used to be American, or were located within the, the borders of the United States of America. Now, 80% of his customers are located outside the borders of the U.S. because we have lost our entire manufacturing base. The, uh, supply, cha- and the supply chain, which provides the raw materials and the uh, subcomponents of the manufactured goods that we receive, have gone overseas, just as the you know when when you see uh, let's say a coffee maker and it says made in china well everything that goes into creating that coffee maker is now made in china as well whether it's the screws or the glass carafe or the plastic moldings uh for the body of the coffee maker and hence the plastic injection molds themselves which is a highly skilled trade to create all of this entire supply chain uh, it has now relocated to Asia, and that is very bad for the economy. That's very bad for the job situation here in America. That's the belief that underlies the American Jobs Alliance and uh, that led this uh, businessman to uh, see the need to educate people, educate the American people about what is at stake here. Mm-hmm. Well, why do you think the jobs have left? What What is your analysis of that? There are many, many factors. And there has been a bipartisan agreement. Uh, the elite opinion makers, the academic elites as well, from Ivy League on down, these people now inhabit, as well as the ivory towers, they inhabit the uh, leadership positions in both of the major political parties. Mm-hmm. And they've come to believe that uh, America does not need manufacturing. Yeah. There has been this, this consensus opinion among the elites that 
America that you've heard of it, a post-industrial economy. We're now going to be in a, uh, a, a service economy that we don't need to make things anymore. And one of the iterations of this is that we're going to have an innovation economy. Everybody's going to be a draftsman, an inventor, and a creator, and we'll leave the, the hard work of making things to, you know, those brown and yellow people somewhere else. Right. Uh, we're all smart guys here. Right. Of course, this, uh, this, this flies in the face of common sense as well as your, your usual bell curve analysis that you're going to have a, a few smart, a few very smart people, a few very stupid people, and a, and a whole lot of people in the middle that are are more than content to to follow orders and you know have somebody else uh, you know tell them what to do and then they'll do it. Right. And um, not everybody's going to be a calculus wizard or. A, and the other the other fallacy of, of of that whole thing of the information economy fallacy uh, myth is that actually, as we saw. Uh, 20 years ago when the man, 40, now it's closer to 40 years ago when the manufacturing jobs began to leave and everybody said, well, don't worry, they'll be replaced by new jobs in the information era. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, we then saw the outsourcing of uh, software engineering and uh, all of these service jobs are actually easier to outsource than manufacturing. The barriers right. to entry for manufacturing are much higher. Once you lose the know-how on how to make something, it's very hard to acquire. And as manufacturing becomes more capital intensive, it's much harder to enter into that field, whereas all you need is a microcomputer to enter into the service and the software field. So there's mm-hmm. no capital barrier to entry. And there's, so it's, uh, you know, there's been a, a lot of misconceptions, and now people are finally coming around to the idea of the innovation economy is, is ridiculous because innovation follows the production of goods. Whoever mm-hmm. makes things figures out how to make things better, figures out a better way to make things, and the next generation of technology inevitably stands on the shoulders of the generation which came before. So if you know how to make a good drivetrain, you're in a better position to make the better drivetrain for the hybrid cars and mm-hmm. then the better drivetrain for, let's say, if it's going to electric cars. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know how to make cars, you're not going to figure out how to make natural gas-powered cars. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, this, uh, there's been a, uh, MIT put out a paper the other day that as we lose these pieces of the manufacturing supply chain, what we've actually done is we've lost a commons, a creative commons that mm. is uh, in somewhat intangible uh, to put a price tag on it. But mm-hmm. it's basically to understand it, it's like, how anyone could understand how in those days where you used to be able to walk out the door, leave a job, go down the street, and get another job, mm-hmm. well, you were bringing some know-how with you. Yes. And so those other businesses benefited by having another business close by that they could poach talent from. <laughs> right. Right. So. Well, that's exactly right, Curtis. You know, but what we've done, though, in our educational system is to put everybody in a, um, in a liberal arts uh, environment, uh, and 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 now people are losing these very basic practical skills that I that I grew up with back in Ohio or in the in the uh, in the Rust Belt. Now, the, the it was the um, you know my father was a machinist, and so. Uh, you know, people that I grew up with, the farmers and people around the more rural areas, they they had practical talents and skills that allowed mm-hmm. them to make things. And and that here's the other point that I would like to make, and I'd like to get your opinion on it. Uh, it to me, it seems as though production, you know, whether you're a miner, uh, a manufacturer, you're basic, you're making basic goods and services. Those are the wealth creating activities of an economy. If I go in. Uh, these big mining companies, as I follow a lot of mining companies, what I do, mm-hmm. uh, they go in and, and put in a mine uh, to mine gold or copper, or whatever. The whole neighbor, whole areas of a, of a province or a state start to gain a huge amount of wealth. Then you have secondary jobs, service jobs that flow from that. Service jobs don't create the higher price. Pay- I mean, the higher paying jobs are leaving. These are manufacturing jobs that are leaving. Uh, and so you would attribute this, though, to the to the elite, I guess, to a great extent. This this whole notion that we don't need to, we don't have to get our hands dirty in America. We can let uh, other kinds of people do that undesirable stuff. 
I think that's a big part of it. Uh, there, there's, uh, there's some sentiment among some people that, well, we priced ourselves out of this thanks to unions or other people dri- driving up wages. Uh, that, that may or may not be a factor here. Uh, certainly some restrictive, uh, Regulations, whether they come from unions or whether they come from ridiculous government regulation, uh, could be part of it. Uh, there's also, though, and, and this should not be under, understated by any means, is there is deliberate policies on the part of the Chinese. Let's let's name names here. The mm-hmm. Chinese Communist Party, which is the ruling party of China, they absolutely subsidize companies to go there. Our Mm. chief economist, the American Jobs Alliance chief economist, Greg Autry, co-author of the book Death by China, has visited China many times. He interviewed the manager of a Foxconn plant that manufactures so much of the Apple equipment and so much of actually all electronic equipment in the world. And that manager told him that China, the government, built that factory, built it. They paid to build the factory and mm-hmm. said to Apple, here's your factory now. You can use it. <laughs> so yeah. They're not playing by free market rules over there. There's no. deliberate subsidies. They subsidize raw materials. They subsidize energy. They subsidize land. They give huge tax breaks. or I mean, forget about tax breaks. They just like mm-hmm. tax holidays. Mm-hmm. And then they do things like build factories. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you can, you know, some some people may complain about, well, gee, we've uh, priced ourselves out because we have, you know, high labor costs. In fact, in high-tech manufacturing, labor is a very small fraction of the cost of production, and what we're competing with is deliberate mercantilist policies designed at destroying America's manufacturing base, stealing it, and then let's talk about cyber war, deliberate espionage, theft, goes on every day. We, we, are, we are in the midst of a trade war. This is war by other means, the uh, goal of which is to weaken the United States and uh, put us at the mercy of foreign countries. That's all right. So, all right, so let's talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, because it seems to me that that would be... If that is the goal of a certain group of people, it seems to me that the Trans-Pacific Partnership, as you presented it at the New York City Junto, would be uh, furthering that cause of, of taking away um, production from the United States and, say, tying our arm behind our back uh, manufacturers in the U.S. to the benefit of, of foreigners. Is that, is that true? Is that a fair characterization? I think that's a very fair characterization, yes. The, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement is misleadingly called a trade agreement by some, though actually you don't see the word trade <laughs> in the name of this. Uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, it goes far beyond trade, and it is the next iteration of this outdated and now proven to be fallacious theory that we don't need to have a national economy. We don't need to have national production here. It's all some type of big one-world global kumbaya, and we all benefit when anybody benefits. Now, I don't know who we is, but uh, it's not that simple. This is an agreement between 11 countries, now 12. We've got uh, nations uh, ranging from, obviously, the United States, uh, Vietnam, Malaysia, Brunei, Singapore, Mexico, New Zealand, Canada, Australia, Chile, Peru, and now Japan wants to join countries around the Pacific Rim that will be merged economically. This is what the Obama administration trade officials have said themselves. It's about integrating the economy and our economies of these countries and establishing global rules. And the global rules will have global enforcement mechanisms. The United States, as a signatory to this agreement, once we become a signatory to this agreement, because it's not concluded yet, we do have an opportunity to stop it, once we're a signatory, all signatory countries will be subject to the jurisdiction of international tribunals, Mm. the World Bank and the United Nations. 
these tribunals will adjudicate any disputes that arise under the rules of this agreement, and these authorities, these international tribunals, will have the power to rewrite our tax laws and rewrite other laws and require uh, our state laws as well as federal laws to conform to the rules of this agreement. Wow. Yeah, it's, this is not science fiction. This is not a black helicopter conspiracy. Uh, Mr. Obama said in his State of the Union that he wishes to conclude this agreement by October. And just last week, on April 5th, at a speech before the Export-Import Bank in Washington, D.C., their annual conference, Vice President Joe Biden talked at length about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And he cited it as the next step in creating, and I'm not putting words in his mouth, creating a new world order. <laughs> yeah. so. Well, they've been uh, moving in that direction, it seems to me, uh, for some time. Uh, the, there's lots of uh, movement, it seems to me, in that direction. The trade is certainly part of it. I think the international banking uh, debacle that's going on is part of it. If, if uh, Europe's in trouble, Mr. Bernanke sends a trillion dollars to Europe, and, uh, and, and you can't believe that Europe's not going to have to pay for that in one way or another. There's, it seems to me this is the trend of things, though. But let me ask you this, Curtis. Why, if, as you say, and I agree with you, that it's proven that you need manufacturing and that you can't just do service jobs, why, why then is Mr. Obama and all these other powerful interests pushing, uh, pushing in this direction for, towards a one-world government? Oh, that's a, it, I don't read minds, and I can only speculate. Uh, but this, th this idea of what Ron Paul would call phony free trade, but which mm -hmm. is actually government-managed trade, uh, it, it, this, this has been bought into by Obama, and by John Boehner, the Republican Party, as well as the Democratic Party, they both bought into this phony free trade theory, this idea that we can, that, that we're going to, you know, merge all the world together and everybody's going to be better off for it. Um, it's companies, uh, transnational corporations have no loyalty to any country. They now have global supply chains. They go, searching for the cheapest labor, the, the best deals they can, whether it's government subsidies or uh, being freed from any type of environmental regulations or whatnot, uh, and at the same time being able to protect their investment from nationalization or confiscation. And when they find that, that, that sweet spot of uh, low cost and, and security, that's where they're going to merge. They have no loyalty to the United States of America or any other country. They just simply see these as platforms. Um, the Ron Paul in 2001 on the floor of the House uh, said these words, the loss of national sovereignty inherent in government-managed trade cannot be overstated. If you don't like GATT, the General Agreement on that, uh, Trades and Tariffs, uh, NAFTA and the World Trade Organization get ready for even more globalist intervention in our domestic affairs. Mm -hmm. As we enter into new international agreements, such as this Trans-Pacific Partnership, be prepared to have our laws and our tax laws increasingly dictated by international bodies. So, as you said, uh, Jay, this, this project's been going on for a long time. Um, yeah. In his book, Sovereignty or Submission, Will Americans Rule Themselves or Be Ruled by Others? The Hudson Institute's John Fonte uh, writes that it, this goes back, I mean, this really goes back hundreds of years. Uh, you, you find th that uh, when we were, our country was founded, the American founders very much wanted not to be part of a global empire. That right. time it was called the British Empire. Right. We also didn't want to be part of the French Empire. Correct. The, the, these two big countries fighting each other, these two big empires fighting each other. And we said, hey, we're just going to do our own thing over here you right. know, on this little, the eastern seaboard of the North American continent. And we'll just do our thing, be a sovereign nation, and you guys can have your own thing. But even then, in those 
times. And going back before then to the 1600s, there were philosophers writing about how we can construct this, this universal governance system. And, you know, you go back to the Bible and you've got the Tower of Babel. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it, I, I, I don't know what drives people, why, why we can't just be happy being ourselves and we've got to right. have folks like Obama and others saying, well, we've got to make this into a big global uh, you know, love fest here. Right. But, well, maybe we're looking for uh, somebody to take care of us. Uh, we're, we're giving up our own individual autonomy and looking for somebody to look over us. I mean, certainly uh, the entitlement attitude that Americans have now and, and not taking responsibility for their own actions, it seems to sort of fit together. You know, I have to, I just, as I was listening to you talk, I had to re- recall Ross Perot's warnings about that giant sucking sound that would recall, that would result from NAFTA, and he was worried about jobs being lost to Mexico at that point in time. And I can remember because I was working in a bank, um, ING was NMB at that time. NMB and Citicorp were big lenders to Mexico. And it really dawned on me that everybody, all of my colleagues, none of them would even entertain the notion that Ross Perot might have some valid points. They wanted to see the so-called free trade. They were they, and I could understand it because we were making loans to very da- very dangerous loans, high risk loans, I should say. They weren't dangerous at all because behind it, uh, NMB and Citicorp knew very well that they would get bailed out. They knew the loans would go bad eventually, or there's a high probability of that, but they were getting 15% spreads or whatever. Big money was being made, and then it dawned on me, hey, you know, I think the bankers are in on this as well. Do you have any comment on that? That's a very good point, Jay. You you make a very good point. And and not to be underestimated is the role of finance, of an Mm out-of-control finance sector in this. When, in the days of Calvin Coolidge, the saying was, what's good for General Motors is good for the United States, is good right. for America. When manufacturing was the preeminent driver of the economy, there was a sense of national identity. But now with finance, the big banks think globally. They can lend money anywhere and make their return, make right. their money. And as you say, they might even do better loaning somewhere else. Right. Uh, they don't care about American jobs because they're global right. now. Right. They make their money whether they're loaning that money to a factory in Mexico or Malaysia or whether or whether it's in Michigan or Malaysia. They don't care. So, right. And they might make a better return in Malaysia as far as they're concerned. So what's interesting and what's even more insidious about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and again, those people in Washington are so far behind the curve, they're going by outdated theories as well as fighting the last war. With the Trans-Pacific Partnership, we will be putting our businesses in direct competition with the government-owned, state-owned enterprises of communist Vietnam and Malaysia. Malaysia yeah. has huge state-owned enterprises. These are government entities that are doing yes. business. Vietnam, you can't even go into business without a government partner in Vietnam, unless maybe you've got a taco truck or something on the streets okay. of Hanoi. Okay, but, Curtis, the problem is we're running out of time here, and I want you to tell our listeners where they can go to support your efforts here. Where can they yeah. go? Yeah. And I also want to ask you, is your old friend Lou Dobbs, is he going to be behind you on this effort? Oh, yes, he will be. He is certainly, he's on this. He's, uh, he's, he's very much behind this. This is still part of his uh, big concern. People can go to get more information and to take action. Go to notpp.us, no, N-O, T-P-P, Trans-Pacific Partnership, dot U-S. No, T-P-P, dot U-S. There you can get more information. You can press the red button, tell Congress to vote no on this, because this one we can actually stop. There are enough patriotic members of the House of Representatives that will stand up for sovereignty, stand up for our Constitution, stand up against setting up an authority higher than the Supreme Court that will basically nullify our laws at will and with no accountability. NoTPP.us, you can make a, uh, send a letter to Congress. You can make a donation there and support this uh, effort. And if you want more information and sign up for updates, you just send me an email at info 
at AmericanJobsAlliance.com. Info at AmericanJobsAlliance.com. American Jobs, with an S, AmericanJobsAlliance.com, yes. Info at AmericanJobsAlliance.com. Excellent. Very good. Well, thank you. I'm sorry, Curtis, we're out of time. Uh, much more to talk to you about, but maybe another time. Thank you so much. And Certainly. Thank we you. We will uh, try to keep our listeners abreast of this. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back after the break with Jeff Berwick. He's going to talk about bitcoins and uh, his efforts to uh, allow you to have freedom. Well, we'll hear what he has to say. He's going to put in ATM machines in Cyprus. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Jeff Berwick. Sandgold is an aggressive gold company operating in Manitoba, Canada, a top-ranked gold mining region. Sandgold's most recent gold discovery, the Shoreline Basalt Mining Unit, is already in production at more than 75,000 ounces per year. And Sandgold continues to pursue nearby targets within one of Manitoba's most prospective gold mining trends, the Rice Lake Gold Belt. Discover the potential at Sandgold. Trading symbol is SGRCF on the OTCQX and SGR on the Toronto Exchange. Visit our website at www.sandgold.ca. 